Welcome back, listeners. This is Austin Roberts. Here on the EcoSIF podcast, we engage leading thinkers in conversations about the kinds of transformations required to create a more sustainable, peaceful, and just world. If you enjoy this podcast, you can help support the work that we are doing by making a donation at ecosiv.org. Today, Andrew Schwartz speaks with Matthew Siegel, who is a philosopher at the California Institute of Integral Studies and a popular blogger at footnotestoplato.com. He is also the author of a number of books, including The Physics of the World Soul, The Relevance of Alfred North Whitehead's Philosophy of Organism to Contemporary Scientific Cosmology. Personally, I've been following Matthew's work for a number of years now, and have always been impressed by his ability to clearly explain complex philosophical concepts, and to show how they are relevant to important matters of politics, science, religion, and ethics. At a recent conference in San Francisco, Matthew gave a talk called Whitehead and Marx, A Cosmopolitical Approach to Ecological Civilization. In short, he argues that Whiteheadian process philosophy and Marx's critique of capitalism must be brought together. Process philosophy, he suggests, not only helps to diagnose the metaphysical roots of the present ecological catastrophe, but also provides a corrective to Marx's anthropocentric view of nature as dead and awaiting the value-creating power of human consciousness, he writes. In the conversation that follows, Andrew and Matthew discuss the importance of thinking with Whitehead and Marx about an ecological civilization, imagining societies beyond capitalism, developing a non-anthropocentric politics, and why Matthew says we need to think and act locally. And now, here's Andrew and Matthew. Welcome back. I am with uh, Matthew T. Siegel. Matt teaches a philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness at the California Institute for Integral Studies and is also an author of, of a popular philosophy blog, footnotestoplato.com. So welcome, Matt. Great to be here, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Now, Matt, you as a uh, philosopher and, and a scholar, you recently gave a presentation, I understand, at the fifth annual conference of the World Ecology Research Network. Is that right? Yep. So your presentation titled something like uh, Whitehead and Marx, a cosmopolitical approach to ecological civilization. And there's a whole lot even just in the title I'd love to unpack, but, but to get us started, I'm wondering why Whitehead and why Marx? And what are these thinkers, you know, how, do, how are they useful for you in thinking about ecology? Hmm. Well, why Whitehead, you know, I sort of centered my scholarship on Alfred North Whitehead's thought for about a decade now. And whether it's because I'm trying to understand new paradigm science or trying to start a new kind of conversation between science and religion, or because I'm, you know, thinking about deep metaphysical questions about the structure of reality, again and again, I just can't find a thinker with a broader reach and uh, with more depth than, than Whitehead. So I could go on and on about why Whitehead, just culturally in our moment, you know, with an ecological crisis, he was a thinker who critiqued what he called the bifurcation of nature, which has to do with the way that human beings and, and human consciousness was thought of as something totally separate from the material world. 
where the material world was just basically matter in motion for no reason or purpose, and human consciousness was supposed to be free, autonomous, rational, and so on. And it's like, well, how do these two things fit together? And um, why were they ever separated in the first place? And Whitehead gives us a historical analysis of how they came to be separated, and also a newly minted metaphysical scheme that allows us to reimagine the universe in such a way that human consciousness is not an anomaly, but integral to the cosmogenetic or evolutionary process of the universe. So Whitehead's central to all of my thinking. And Marx is a thinker who, you know, obviously um, developed a pretty robust critique of capitalist um, social relations and capitalist economics in the mid-19th century. And that wasn't just a theoretical critique. He was a revolutionary thinker and activist and, you know, um, the, the 20th century uh, and, you know, the second half of the 19th century definitely had the stamp, you know, had Marxist stamp on them in terms of how political revolution um, unfolded in various places around the world. And, you know, more and more after the, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was a period there where it's like, well, capitalism won and everything's going to be great. And then we had the financial crisis in 2008. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Inequality keep, keeps rising. There's the ecological crisis, which more and more people are realizing um, is going to require rethinking the very basis of value in the economic, but also the, the cultural sense. What does it mean when something has value? Is this just a purely monetary thing? What's the relationship between human labor and the value of the products, the goods and services in, in exchange in the economy. Marx looked at all of this and he was, you know, there are ecological critiques of Marx that we might want to make from a Whiteheadian perspective. And indeed, that's what I tried to do in this presentation. But I don't know that there are too many philosophers who have developed such a penetrating critique of an unmasking of how capitalism operates, what it has to make unconscious in most people's, you know, day-to-day -day lives in order for it to continue to extract value from human labor, to extract value from the natural world. Um, and though you can critique Marx for being a little too utopian about the future of industrial technology, it's like he just wanted to make the fruits of industrialization accessible in a more equitable way to the entire human population. But he didn't really, he had some understanding of how soil fertility was being threatened by industrial agriculture. But he basically was, in a kind of naive way, pro-technology. He thought that would liberate human beings from having to do as much labor. And that as long as we had the political transformation to shift power into the hands um, of working people, that there would be this technological utopia and human freedom via the mastery of nature would be the future of our species and the future of civilization. You know, his predictions didn't really pan out exactly. And we've seen that industrial technology, whether capitalist or communist, is just, I would say, intrinsically destructive of the Earth's um, ecosystems. So when you bring Whitehead and Marx together, Whitehead's understanding of value as more than just a human construct, more than just something that human beings add to raw material, Marx still had basically, you know, he still basically had John Locke's understanding of how 
value is added to raw materials extracted from nature by human beings. It's a very anthropocentric understanding of value. Whereas when you look at Marx from a Whiteheadian perspective, you can say, well, wait a minute. Human beings aren't the only producers of value in the universe or on this planet. Honeybees are value-creating organisms. And all species are value-creating creatures. And our economy, if our human economy, if we hope to survive through the next century, and we need to start to incorporate non-human value into our cultural understanding and how we, how we make meaning of our lives, but into our economy, into our political economy, into the way that we trade goods and services. If we're not thinking of the natural world as a partner in our economy, but rather as a storehouse of raw materials, then we're going to continue to pilot this civilizational train right off the side of a cliff. So that's, that's I think Whitehead and Marx are, there's been a little bit of work on this by like Philip Clayton and others. And Pomeroy wrote a book in the mid 2000s on Whitehead and Marx, which was, is really fabulous. Um, but that's, you know, I know John Cobb Jr. has written a bit about Marx in the past, but there's just not enough out there. So it's an area, an intersection that I really want to see attended to a bit more. So that's why I brought Whitehead to this conference. It's really a conference of Marxists, ecologically oriented Marxists coming out of the work of Jason Moore, who's, who's written a lot of um, really wonderful books lately. And I thought, you know, who am I going to talk about in front of these Marxists? Like, oh, well, Whitehead, I'm the Whitehead, I'm a Whitehead guy, so it was natural anyways. But I just thought that uh, they might find his work especially relevant to what they're trying to do with Marx by ecologizing his admittedly more anthropocentric um, and industrial perspective. And it actually, you know, thinking in like a Chinese context, mm-hmm. those three pieces of Whitehead, Marx, and ecological civilization are natural dialogue partners um, since China is a, a Marxist state with, I mean, that's where the idea of ecological civilization is really sort of flourishing and emerging in the language of ecological civilization. And of course, uh, Whitehead, through the lens of maybe like constructive postmodernism, seems to be uh, really flourishing in parts of, of Chinese discourse. So I think it's interesting that you brought all of those together because I think there's a whole lot of people in the world that would find that uh, an important move. Right. Yeah. Thanks for mentioning what's, what's going on in China. There's probably a wealth of scholarship on this connection that I can't read uh, because it's in Chinese. So Likewise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I love what you're talking about here and this idea of, I think, imagining and materializing a post-capitalist world. And you, I think you already started saying a little about this, but, but I wonder if you can say more of, of why post-capitalism? So this is a very, it can be a very contentious topic because there are a lot of people, especially in the United States, who when they hear post-capitalist or they hear critiques of capitalism or they hear socialism or, Gaia forbid, communism, mentioned as something positive that we should move towards, um, they start to think like, oh my God, this is going to be a totalitarian takeover, human freedom and individuality is going to be squashed. And so the first thing I'd want to say about a post-capitalist movement is that we don't have a 
a design for a new type of society and a new type of economy that's just sitting on the shelf waiting to be put into action. Communism, as it unfolded in the Soviet Union, with especially Stalin, but you know, even Lenin's understanding of the intellectual vanguard, it wasn't what Marx had in mind with the workers actually being in charge of making decisions, you know, shaping their own destiny. It was taking a lot from Marx, but you know, obviously this, there's nothing that I would want to defend about the Soviet Union. You know, I, I think China's moving in a good direction around ecology, but they're also moving, I would say, pretty quickly in a direction of squashing individual rights, and there's a surveillance state, and they're obviously, there's the Communist Party that's in charge of that country, but they're also opening to global markets and dabbling in, it's, it's, a, it's a form of state capitalism, I've, I've heard it described. Actually, they're capitalist in the world market, even though internally they're more communist and they're opening up more free enterprise within, even within China. So China's an interesting case. It's not exactly pure communism anymore. So, you know, I'd want to acknowledge that just because we say we want some post-capitalist society that we're not saying, oh, well, Stalin got it right. Uh, and if you disagree, well, to the gulag with you. So the critique that, that Marx leveled at, uh, at capitalism where he would talk about the way that surplus value or profit is generated is by basically stealing the value of the labor of workers, forcing workers to become wage slaves, basically, so that they no longer own their own productive or creative capacity, we might say in Whitehead's terms, but they're forced to sell it at the market price to the owners of corporations, um, who then, using that labor, produce and sell something that makes them a profit. Well, where does that profit come from? Um, how can capitalism not be a zero-sum? How can the economy not be a zero-sum game? Well, you've got to convince the workers that earning a wage is somehow just or equitable, when in fact, their wages are, of workers are kept low enough so that the owners can continue to make profits. And nowadays, with financial capitalism, the people who have a lot of money are able to make even more money just by investing money. And so money itself has become a commodity. And, you know, in all of this, the, the purpose of the economy has become um, making money. Making money has become an end in itself. And, you know, if you look at the way that the human economy relates to the ecosystems that it depends upon for all of its raw materials, so-called raw materials, um, the best indication that an ecosystem and that a human society is being degraded, that the life capacity of, a, of a, an ecosystem and a human community is being degraded is that economic profits in that area are going up. So we have a system that is so absurd, a capitalist system, that the best indicator of the destruction of life is that money is being made. Right. So... Right. We know what's wrong with the current system. And we know that, I think, I think we know that giant state centralized authority that's going to try to command and control the entire economy, that, that, that just doesn't work. Um, there is something about markets that generates self-organizing dynamics. And so I think there's something about markets that can be preserved. It's just that the, the way that corporate charters are written the idea that greed is good, 
the idea that all profit should just go to into private hands. That's all where the problems lie. I don't think markets themselves are the problem. We want a society where power is decentralized and where wealth is decentralized. So that means no giant monopolistic corporations and no giant states because we have a situation in the United States right now where through what's called regulatory capture, corporations are able to write their own legislation and get it passed. And so the idea that we live in a democracy, I think is okay. It's a democracy of corporations, of corporate persons and the average person, the average human being, unless they're a billionaire really has no power. Our Congress people, our president, they don't work for us, right? They work for the corporations because our cultural value system and our political economy is set up so that we think the highest value is making money. And we justify that by saying, well, the more money these corporations make, the more jobs that people have. Well, what kind of jobs? Like working at fast food restaurants, like working in an Amazon warehouse, like first of all, those jobs don't pay the bills. And they're, those kinds of jobs are just proliferating a destructive culture that's, you know, the, to- the clock is ticking on the amount of time we can continue business as usual before civilization itself is on the verge of collapsing. So, you know, what will a post-capitalist society look like? I think it will be a society wherein power is radically decentralized and democratized. It'll be a society where it's not just human beings that are thought of as members of the community. I, I don't think we need to flatten the hierarchy of value and say that a human life counts just as much as a tree or a beaver or whatever. Like we can still have, you know, drawing on Whitehead's cosmology, a, a value hierarchy where more intense forms of experience and consciousness have m- more ethical standing, but every being has ethical standing, right? And we have to make those difficult judgments. Um, Whitehead says life is robbery. We can't change that, even in an ecological civilization, a post-capitalist world, but the robber needs justification. And I think we can do a better job justifying the fact that human beings need to eat, you know, and we can have a more sustainable form of agriculture, um, a more ethical and compassionate form of agriculture, and I think it's, it's hard to really get into detail about what the post-capitalist world will look like because we need to be experimental. All yeah. I can say for sure is that we need more democracy, we need more wealth equality, and we need to welcome non-human beings into our, our ethical circle and our sense of community, right? And we need to be able to represent bumblebees and um, cedars and um, rivers. Like, they can't talk. They can't show up in a courthouse to sue a human being who polluted the river or whatever. They need human representation. So there's a way in which we need to find the means of representing non-human voices in our human societies, because for better or worse, we are in charge now. This is the Anthropocene. But Hmm. we have now the responsibility to bring these other members of the Earth community into the conversation. That's amazing. So much of what you said uh, is sparking these other conversations I know that are happening around the world uh, and making me think of those, the, the idea of giving legal rights to nature and as opposed to just to corporations and, uh, and something that'd be interesting to talk about. But, but this, this question of values, it seems like that's, that's largely uh, a shift in how we understand value or an expansion of our notion of value 
sounds to me key to what you're proposing as, as a path toward a, a post-capitalist future, toward a world that really works for all, rather than a world designed to line the pockets of, of the 1% or the, the 0.1%. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, when you're describing the, the sort of problems of capitalism and, and for sort of the experience of human life, as well as the effects it has on the planet at large, what I'm hearing is the really a, a, a system that prioritizes wealth over health, mm-hmm. a system where um, the, the success is, is seen through in terms of economic success, which is in ter- defined in terms of growing GDP, which is really just defined in terms of market activity, which is actually not saying anything particular about the experience of living creatures and beings on this planet mm-hmm. um, and the quality of life that is uh, resulting from these sort of market, market activities, um, which really just reflect sort of corporate health rather than actual, actual health of living creatures. Right. It would be better if there was no relationship between GDP going up and the quality of life, but there is a relationship. It's negative. <laughs> As GDP goes up, quality of life goes down. Right. Know? So it's worse than just that they've been disconnected. It's that it's inverse. Right. And that the priority is in the wrong place. So the priority is about wealth understood in terms of a sort of monetary value. But when you're talking about sort of the value of life, you're talking about um, a cosmopolitics. Can you say a little bit about what it would mean to really expand our notion of value beyond monetary worth or even human social contracts? And what, what I mean, what that means for, I mean, what do you mean by a cosmopolitic and, and how that's tied to value? So cosmopolitics comes out of the work of um, Isabel Stengers and Donna Haraway and Bruno Latour and others who they're trying to develop a sense of politics, which I think these thinkers that I've mentioned just now would define politics basically as the effort to compose a common world. Politics is, it's, it's an activity whereby we come to in, inhabit the same the same cosmos. And so for these thinkers, they're challenging this modern idea that the world is just nature and human society takes place sort of in a bubble on top of nature. Um, and that we already share the same world. It's called nature and politics is just about organizing the needs uh, and wants and rights and so on of people inside the social, the social bubble of other human beings. And they're trying to burst that bubble and say, well, there never was this unified nature that modern science thought it was describing to us. What we actually have, if we zoom in and study the way that the sciences operate, are many natures. Every special discipline within the sciences studies some unique facet of what we call nature. And so really, cosmopolitics is, is a multinaturalism, which is different from a multiculturalism where, again, it's the idea that there's one nature with many cultural perspectives on that one nature. Um, I don't want to denigrate multiculturalism. I think that's an important perspective also. But the subtext is that there's one nature. And so what cosmopolitics is saying is that when we do politics, we can't just assume that we live in the same world already. Because who has access to that one unified natural world? some capital S science, which is this ideal observer that's supposed to stand outside of the political fray and give us an objective perspective on this capital N nature. We don't have that. And so 
Stengers, Latour, Haraway, and others, they're trying to bring a new, a new sense to our political struggles where a lot of people on the left, like remember the science march um, when Trump had just become president? There's right. Basically, the sentiment was, if we just put scientists in charge of politics, everything would be great as if all the political squabbles would melt away because we had access to the objective truth that no one would dispute and like everything would be great. <laughs> it's not that simple, right? Because science is full of politics. Science is a human cultural activity. You've got all the psychological baggage of individual scientists and the contingencies of history and funding and all of this stuff. So. <laughs> It's not just like, oh, science is pure and about the truth and politics is all, you know, about somehow emotion and, and lying and whatever it takes to win. And, you know, yeah, we want to make distinctions between these different cultural activities. But what a cosmopolitical perspective is saying is that we can value scientific facts and scientific truth, but it's because we value it that we if we're scientists say, it's because we value facts that we devote our lives to working with peers to study a particular phenomenon, to construct those facts using instruments, using our knowledge, using worldwide institutions. Those facts need to be constructed and protected and maintained. They're not just sitting out there waiting for us to plug into our political squabbles and, and bring clarity to everything. So like something like climate change, a cosmopolitical approach to climate change would say, you know, don't shout at the Republicans and say, you're denying the plain truth and the facts of science. And then because the, the Republicans retort and say, we've seen those scientists emails. They're just normal people who are, you know, debating with each other about how to, you know, scrub the data so that it, it says what they want it to say. And like, well, science is a messy activity. And there's all sorts of stuff that goes on inside the black box to produce the facts. But that doesn't mean the facts, just because they're constructed, aren't valid and aren't important. And so, yeah. you know, rather than try to put up this firewall between what we call science and what we call politics, we have to recognize that it's, we're all human beings, you know, engaging with one another in this society to try to create a common world together. And rather than just assuming like the scientists do that we already live in the same world called nature, we, it's, it's a lot more difficult than that. You know, we have to be able to work dip diplomatically to translate the values, not only of human beings and other species, but between human beings and human communities. We have a lot of work to do just within our own species to articulate a workable notion of what it means to be human that includes people from all continents, people of all genders, people of all sexual orientations and races and ethnicities. Like, we're not even there yet. But I think, you know, that doesn't mean we need to figure that out before we can figure out a multi-species democracy. I think doing that work actually helps us a lot with our human divisions. Nice. Right? Because racism and speciesism are actually more closely entwined um, than, it, than it might first appear. There's another thinker named um, Timothy Morton who makes this argument uh, in a book called, it's a book on Marx. Oh, it's called Humankind. It's a book on an ecological reading of Marx. Um, he doesn't go in too much to Whitehead, but it's in a similar vein. So yeah, cosmopolitics, it's like 
acknowledging the the pluralistic nature of human society, but also of the universe, that we live more in a pluriverse than a universe, which is to say that the universe itself is made of perspectives, right? In Whitehead's terms, we'd say it's made of actual occasions of experience, which are the achievement of a perspective. Each actual occasion, it's a, pulse, a creative pulsation that achieves a new perspective on the universe, a new, a new value is achieved with each actual occasion. And that process of concrescence, the many becoming one and being increased by one, like that, that's just ongoing. And in each moment, we might say a new world is brought forth. Hmm. And politics is the effort to compose some sense of commonality out of that multi-perspectival creative becoming. So if politics wasn't hard enough already, <laughs> cosmopolitics is trying to wake us up to the, the multifariousness of our, of our situation um, and the role that, you know, it, 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 it gives a, a kind of ontological weight to the importance of diplomacy because right. my world is not your world, is not anyone else's world, but we can still meet in some liminal space in between. And that's what it's all about. That's how creativity happens. It's through those transactions between these perspectives as they continue to unfold. And when you talk about sort of reality as, as most fundamentally constituted by experiences, right. then it seems like that's, that's a point of sort of bridging that divide. Between, you talk about the divide between sort of nature or science on the one hand and politics on the other, which really in, in many ways is that divide between facts and values. Right. Um, and it seems that a world of experience is a world that, that sort of overcomes that bifurcation of facts and values where the idea of sort of being able to, to get to understanding the sort of bare facts uh, free from value is, is not no longer the goal. So then what, what does become the goal? If the world is primarily constituted by experiences and those experiences are value experiences, better or worse, and uh, different intensities, right. uh, what does that entail for living um, ecologically or designing a civilization that can, that can have that sort of ecological, long-term, sustainable scope? Well, you know, Whitehead said the purpose or the teleology of the universe is the achievement of beauty. You know, Thomas Berry said that the purpose of this whole universe and of all of evolution is celebration. In a, a pan-experiential cosmos, it's all about not just survival, but thriving, finding ways to intensify experience, to intensify and enhance beauty. That's the end game. So, so that just means we need more, like, more models or more like pictures, beautiful pictures. I mean, what, what, what does it mean to enhance beauty in the world? So, okay. So let's think about the like modern cosmology and the way that it has informed modern politics and our understanding of society and values. We really value work a lot, right? You know, Protestant work ethic and that whole thing. It's how we know we're doing a good job. Like we're working hard and the type of work that we've, it's not that work's not important. We're always going to need to do work um, to expend energy, to, to grow our food and to erect structures that we like to inhabit and so on. But there's a way in which work has become an end in itself. And in, in a um, society whose purpose was ultimately 
to enhance beauty, I think we'd be finding ways to be more playful. We would reorient ourselves to not, and you know, there's an interesting intersection between how physics thinks of energy and how economics thinks of work. There's a migration of a metaphor that happens in the 19th century where energy is defined as the ability to do work, which is very different from, say, a visionary poet's perspective like William Blake, who says energy is eternal delight. So if we have a cosmology where energy is eternal delight, or in Whitehead's sense, energy is the self-enjoyment of actual occasions of experience, that translates back into our understanding of society and cultural values to where rather than we feel like we accomplish something when we work really hard, we accomplish something when, we, when we're able to build our society in a playful way so that we're actually enjoying our existence rather than thinking that we're judged by God or whoever because of how hard we work. I love that the word enjoyment you just used, because I was thinking, you know, this, this notion of enhancing beauty, it's not as if we're enhancing some sort of objective principle called beauty that's mm-hmm. just a fact out in the world, but it's, it's the experience of beauty right. and um, the experience of joy and enjoyment seems to be key to that. Right. Uh, so then if we are developing um, a new politic that's uh, in a post-capitalist society, instead of it just being about work and just being about money, you know, all of these things should be oriented toward increasing enjoyment, the quality of life, uh, experience of overall well-being and relationships. So there's like a a qualitative measure Mm -hmm. rather than just a quantitative one. Right. That would would just be a fascinating way to establish a new sort of economy on on qualitative well-being and relationality. Right. You can't measure that in dollars. So it's... It's a tremendous shift. Like so much of the move to a post-capitalist society is requiring an existential transformation because in our secular age, when, you know, there are plenty of people who are still religious in a kind of traditional sense, but more and more people have surrogate religions. And consumerism is probably one of the fastest growing surrogate religions worldwide. Um, As more people are brought into the market economy and like they start earning a wage at working for whatever corporation. And, you know, look at what's happening in China. Millions and millions of people are coming into the middle class and all of a sudden they can buy all this stuff and they get meaning from buying this stuff. The whole economy is driven by these, by this manufactured need really want that advertisers, you know, plug into us make us think we well we need that new car we need that new iphone or whatever and this becomes a kind of surrogate religion a a source of happiness and purpose that's produced for us by corporate advertising and pr firms and people have you know gotten used to the the surge of excitement that comes from like waiting in line for the new model of the iphone to come out and to get rid of that consumerist mentality to ask people to shift away their attention um, from that to something else is going to be really scary. It's going to produce a lot of fear in people because there's a vacuum that modern society has produced this meaning vacuum in us. And we're desperate, you know, for surrogate forms of this, of this meaning. Um, And consumerism doesn't really, it's like eating um, wonder bread or Skittles or something. It's, It's not nutritious. And so we need to, rediscover our relationship to the natural world, I think. I think that's where 
we originally learned how to be human ultimately by <laughs> experiencing the cycles of the seasons and observing the sky and forming relationships with other species in our environment. We've just lost touch with that, those, those primal sources of meaning, but they're still there. When the power goes out and you're in the middle of the city and you look up at the sky and you see the Milky Way, it's like you remember immediately what the purpose of life on this planet is because it's just sublime. The beauty is overwhelming. And I think that that experience is universal among, among human beings. You know, when they have never seen the Milky Way before because they grew up in the city and then they go out uh, into the country or the power goes out and they see the stars, it's always this awe-inspiring moment. So, you know, that's just there waiting for us. And we need to be existentially prepared for the loss of all these surrogates so that we can reconnect with uh, the magic of the universe. So, I mean, you, you talk about being overwhelmed by, by beauty and by, by the natural world, um, the cosmos. And uh, of course, I think a lot of people might be listening now feeling a little overwhelmed saying, oh, well, we've got this vision of ecological civilization, of, of, of new types of human communities designed to promote the flourishing of life and overall well-being. And we have this path to ecological civilization that includes a an entire reorientation of values, a, a reimagining of the role of humans in relationship to the natural world, a restructuring of our societies and economies and, and governments. It's like kind of just super overwhelming for people thinking, now what? Where do, where do we go from here? So what advice do you have for our listeners when it comes to sort of being existentially prepared for this shift? Hmm. And, and what can we do now to begin to sort of live into this, this new mode of being? So I hear that it can be overwhelming. And I think, you know, the saying, I guess, that came out of the 60s was um, think globally, act locally. Um, I would say actually, as counterintuitive as it seems, I don't think we can think globally either. We need to think locally and act locally. Because, you know, people who are generally on the left side of the political spectrum generally think that something like the United Nations is important and should have more power or that someone who thinks that the federal government is in place to like make, make this country awesome um, just by sort of in a top-down centralized way, like enforcing certain rules. Like, you know, when you talk about civil rights and integrating schools and stuff, like there's a role for the central government. But I think if you look at what happened when someone like Barack Obama was elected and everyone thought he was the Messiah and that, you know, everything would, would just magically become great um, because we, there was this really nice man in the White House. Um, and so we, we have this way of putting our hope in some big global transformation or even some big national level transformation. Like if only we can get the right president in there. Not saying that that's not important. I'm campaigning for the, for the, for the president the Demo in the Democratic primary. I'm doing all that. But we need to shift our sense of where the transformation is going to happen way, 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 way closer to home. What can we do with our own lives to eat in a more ethical and sustainable way? Um, how can we form relationships and create community in a way that allows us to shift away from consumerism into some other form of meaning making into a more celebratory and playful mode of existence? Uh, it's not easy. We got to pay the bills, but 
like as individuals and as communities, we can take small steps that are manageable right in our local environment and in our personal lives. And I think shifting our sense of where change happens closer to home, it's less overwhelming and we don't get lost in these big abstractions, you know, the political fights that we're having and like, again, it's not that it's not important, but it's just, it feels increasingly like a distraction. Um, a new president's not going to save us, right? Um, I hope we get the right person there, but it's like those structures, those institutions that have gotten us this far during the modern period, they're crumbling. I don't know that those institutions, as they exist now, can transition to what we need. They may need to collapse and something else will arise in their place. So maybe that's more overwhelming to think about the collapse of the federal government or whatever, but uh, this, is, this is what happens. Civilization has a life cycle. And before an ecological civilization can be born, it could be that things are gonna get way more local than we've been used to in the modern period. But if you go back to the medieval period, you know, Jason Moore talks a lot about this. When Rome fell, when that Roman civilization collapsed, sounds really scary, right? Actually, the average person living on the continent in Europe, the average peasant, their life expectancy went up. Their nutrition went up because they weren't having to give all their crops to the wealthy Roman landowners, right? So things got way more local. It was more about what was going on in your village and you didn't have to worry about what was going on in, in Rome. I think something similar is gonna unfold over the next century where what might look like collapse from that global institutional perspective, actually at a more local level, it's gonna be a composting process that's gonna increase the fertility of our local communities and our capacity to take care of ourselves in a way that's more ecologically resilient and that will be able to create culture on a level that isn't a mass level, but is rather unique to the place and to the people who are committed to specific communities. And yeah, I hope, you know, communities can interact with each other, but it's, it's not going to be the type of global village that, you know, Marshall McLuhan and others imagined. So think locally and act locally. <laughs> that would be my response to that sense of overwhelm. That is, that is fantastic. So I think what we've seen here today is the importance of philosophy for thinking about uh, living in a meaningful way on this planet uh, with one another and with the rest of nature. And uh, if you're interested in learning more about sort of the importance of ideas on these sorts of issues, I encourage you to follow Matt's blog on Footnotes to Plato. That's footnotes, the number two, Plato.com, uh, where he's got lots of great ideas that he's always sharing there. Thanks so much, Matt, for joining us. It's been a pleasure having you on. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you.